Hi there, and thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. I'm very excited today to be with Milos Pelinius and Kyle-Johan Sundberg. Milos is a professor of cardiovascular prevention, and she's a medical doctor originally, and she still sees patients in a physical activity, diet, and cardiovascular health clinic. She's based at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm in Sweden, as is Kyle-Johan Sundberg, and he's an MD-PhD and the associate professor and actually does active research in physiology and pharmacology as well. He focuses on the molecular aspects of exercise and then translates this through his public health work that we'll be focusing on today. Uh, welcome, Mylis. Thank you very much. And hi, Carl Johan. Hello there. Good to be here. Great, great to have you both on the call. and to alert the listener that we're going to be talking about your fantastic book, Physical Activity in the Prevention and Treatment of Disease. And we're going to be talking about the general principle of exercise on prescription. And we'll be looking at this particularly in Sweden, but also from your experience around the world. So beginning with Mylis, tell us the background of exercise in prescription in Sweden. Things started in mid-80s when some of us GPs started to more systematically write prescriptions uh, on physical activity or exercise to our patients and uh, real soon uh, understood that we need some kind of uh, support. Uh, And so in the beginning of the 20s, 2001, I think, there was a national campaign in Sweden about promotion of physical activity. And then some of us, Kaljuan and some other colleagues, we had the the idea of uh, writing a handbook, a handbook for uh, healthcare professionals with, uh, to start with, the scientific evidence about physical activity and health, but even more important, also some support about how to do it, methods of uh, how to promote physical activity in clinical practice. So that was the first book published 2003. And then we revised it and published another one, 2008. And now, uh, finally, this is also translated into English. The book is highlighted in the cover of the March 2011 issue. And we'll give the link on this podcast as well so people can click to download why why do we need a book when there are guidelines in various countries? Well, yes, it's right. Uh, as you say, the scientific evidence is there and it's huge and it's growing. The guidelines are there and they are updated. But there is a gap between the guidelines and uh, uh, clinical practice. And I think we we need this kind of support, uh, a handbook about how to do it, pedagogic skills, what can we learn from others, methods uh, for the promotion of physical activity. Do you agree, Carl Johan? Definitely, and I would also like to say that the feedback we get from clinicians that use it is that it provides a context and a background for them to have a deeper understanding of the value of physical activity and the, the ways and means of uh, recommending and motivating the patient. So it does not only contain the biological evidence and the mechanical aspects of it, so to speak, but also chapters which deal with motivational interviews 
and other aspects which are central to any long-term success. And are there any examples of stories you can tell us where you've seen people use an example of people using the handbook or um, young doctors changing their behaviour compared to previous um, doctors? So are there any stories that illustrate some of the points you're making? Oh, yes. For example, we have a, a very, well, I should say, powerful network of young physicians all over Sweden that uh, are working to spread the knowledge about physical activity on prescription and, and lifestyle interventions, I should say. So so there is a great interest, in, interest, in fact, uh, uh, in Sweden. I would say so, too, that not least the younger generations, both at the internship, residence, um, specialist training level really see the value of this as a complement to what they have been taught otherwise. In fact, the Swedish government decided a few years ago that uh, to ask the Swedish Council on Technology Assessment in Healthcare uh, to perform a systematic review on methods of promoting physical activity. And uh, we found that at that time, there were 87 studies on methods for the promotion of physical activity, and they all consistently showed that whatever you do, it has an effect. It will increase the patient's physical activity level. And uh, I think these systematic overviews and uh, other types of evidence are key to convince not least policymakers and the like, but the evidence needs to be presented both from a, a efficiency, efficacy point of view, but also from the health economics point of view. So we have a lot of lobbying to do as well, even though Sweden has come some way in this. We have, I would say, I don't know if you agree, Miles, but we have years to work hard on oh, yes, convincing the system of the quite strong value. Absolutely. What I'm hearing is that the, we're invoking the socio-ecological model, these behaviour change efforts can't happen in isolation. Yes, it started in isolation. It, it started uh, uh, from uh, ideas in the head of some enthusiasts. But today, I would like to think that it, it's, it is integrated in these different kinds of, of levels. But... I think the the cooperation between these different levels it's it's not good enough. We we can do much much better. Well, I totally agree, and I think that what we've understood is that we have to work at many different levels with different types of let's say techniques and arguments because different decision makers and the on the implementing side, the physician population, physiotherapists and nurses and so, need very different, uh, let's say, and arguments when it comes to the health professional population. It has a lot to do with both the biology of things, but also the psychological aspect, the, the motivation to find what really can um, be suitable for the individual and to realize that, what Miles was on to before, that... Uh, Basically, any form of physical activity is better than none. And lastly, when it comes to involving the community at large, it's very important that you have a physical activity referral system. And key is to have a coordinated person that can know not only the, the prescribing health professionals, but also where to send patients. So, yes, it's very 
complicated in a sense, but once you have the system in place, studies have shown that it has a high, high compliance because people are as willing to do this as long as it's structured uh, as they are to take most of the drugs that they prescribed. And how have you developed that network with the sports centres and the health clubs? We contacted the, the largest uh, local sport club and we set up uh, classes for education, education of, of the trainers together with the uh, physicians, physiotherapists, and so on from the primary health care. So that, that's how we got to know each other because we wanted to be sure that if I refer my patient with a coronary heart disease or uh, uh, whatever to the sports club, I need to know that it's it's safe, that it's good and that it's safe. So I think that that's very important to, to really work together close uh, in a close cooperation, and also to get feedback from uh, the local sports club um, to the the person who prescribed exercise or physical activity. And there are thousands of examples all over Sweden right now how GPs and uh, others have started to cooperate with the sports clubs and, and others uh, in their local areas. And I imagine that doesn't um, happen one-off. You need to have a few of these education classes. So tell me, you know, practically, if I wanted to get my local fitness centre engaged in this way, what would you recommend I do? Invite them. Uh, try to uh, to learn what's their background. Do they have uh, any kind of uh, medical education? Are they really skilled uh, trainees and so on? And I think uh, that's rather easily done. It's one or two meetings. Yes, I think that's the best way. Start communicating by simply talk to them. And it's not only sports club. It's also, of course, fitness centers and uh, other types are more, let's say, easygoing, like walking clubs and things. But, of course, one also has to remember that uh, uh, investigations of physical activity on prescription in Sweden show that approximately 50% of the prescriptions are individual prescriptions. Uh, patients or people are starting to to walk or uh, uh, pool walking or whatever. Walking is the most Nordic, common. Nordic walking. Nordic walking, yes. Mm-hmm. And and 50%, it's a referral to to uh, to a sports club or fitness centre. And just for the North American listeners, Nordic walking is walking with poles and uh, that sort of walking? Correct. It's very popular. It's uh, We have winter six months a year and it's dark and cold, so pole walking is, uh, is suitable in Sweden. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. So then we've got the environment set up, we've had our meetings and we've got the coordinator in place. So let's bring it back to the individual clinician now. How can physical activity in prescription be used in practice? And so let's bring it back to the one patient level. Let's say you've got a patient with hypertension and then you're thinking of putting this physical activity into practice. How does that look? That's a key question. I think it's it's about my own attitude. Often it starts in the in the doctor's head. 
I, I have to be aware of the huge scientific base there that is there today. And if I know about that, I, I think it's rather easy to uh, to to tell about this uh, to my patient and to discuss with him or her about previous physical activity habits and to tell about uh, the strong association between our lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle of today and uh, hypertension and to, in a dialogue, ask him or her, before we meet again within six weeks, could you try to to walk five or ten minutes during lunchtime? And usually, 95% of the times, he or she says, well, yes, okay, if it's that easy, let's try. And then the next meeting, that's the most important meeting, I think, because for sure... His or her blood pressure will be at least, and if it's only two millimeters lower, that's great, because then you have something to show. It really works. It's feedback. It's uh, it's uh, encouraging. It's positive feedback. So then you you go from there, and and uh, I I think it's it's it puzzles me sometimes. I've been doing this for 27 years now, and I've met. Only two or three patients that that uh, deny in English. Help they me. No, thank you. Yes. Mm. Yes. They no, thank you. <laughs> thank, but do. no thanks. Yes, uh, it, it's very, very rare. So I think it's about our own attitude. No, it's great to get your experience, Milas, because you're in the clinic doing this, and it really comes across that you see success and um, the patients feel better. I guess being a devil's advocate, though, I still feel there's a disconnect between education of health professionals and them actually putting this into practice. Sure. Um, and so um, how how do we do that in, in North America, for example, where I think the cultures are not quite as advanced as you are in Sweden? Well, I would say that uh, apart from the what we mentioned, education, a coordinative function locally, the political buy-in, including um, feedback through uh, the reimbursement, uh, is key. And uh, I think, in a sense, in the procurement element or in the quality assurance element of the insurance system, uh, that different in, in North America, for example, where a lot of healthcare is privately funded. Uh, some systems have started to do this, like the Kaiser Permanente, for example, in, on the West Coast, mostly in the U.S. They're quite active in preventative measures, including this. So simply by looking at the whole economical situation, by having a reimbursement element for those that prescribe, etc. And Australia as well has come pretty far in this regard. And in some parts of Sweden as well, there is a component uh, of the financial kickback to the those that um, do this, so that it strengthens the whole GP uh, office. It doesn't go directly to the physician, but it goes into the budget, so to speak. I think that's key, too. Otherwise, this will be seen as a nice-to-have and not need-to-have. Yes. Carl-Johan, you talk about the counselling with the five A's. Tell me about that. Well, for effective counselling, it's important to have models or structures in a sense. And one structure that has been tried and is possibly quite uh, useful is called the 5A structure. 
and uh, it goes along the line of assessment, advice, agreement, assistance, and arrangement. So first you have to assess where the patient is, uh, both mentally and physically, and uh, motivational-wise. And uh, with that basis, you can move on. Otherwise, it's very difficult. And you also have to set goals, in a sense, at this stage. And uh, then you can start advising in more concrete fashion and basically have a contractual element between you and the patient. And naturally, assistance of different forms is needed, and that uh, includes uh, the structure of the whole of the whole uh, setup in various ways, using techniques to increase motivation and confidence. And then, not least important, is follow-up, so that you provide feedback and the patient senses that you really care about this. And Miley's can fill in here with extensive clinical experience about the importance of follow-up and other elements of this. Yeah, I agree. The follow-up is extremely important, um, both for the for the patient and and, and also for for ourselves in, in healthcare. In the book, there also we also try to discuss how to assess risk and safe counselling, because in fact, at least uh, in the clinic where I work, we see a lot of. Uh, risk individuals with cardiovascular risk factors it's very important that we are trained also in in assessing risk and also to discuss risk and and how to get started and so on when we talk to the patient and there have been analysis made also in Sweden what uh, primary care senses are the most urgent needs in a sense to really fully implement this and use it to the extent it should and that includes that the most common need expressed is competence support in a sense knowledge support yeah. and then various incentive mechanisms so that they can motivate this in the discussions with the financial people in the system that this is worthwhile doing for various reasons and um, also the follow-up systems need to be more unified and and have a common structure across the board. And the fourth, one of the others mentioned was e-record integration, so that it goes into the computerized health records. Speaking of those e-records, um, Robert Salas, Bob, Bob Salas, who yeah. got a podcast in this series, has implemented a questionnaire about physical activity, how much physical activity you do as a vital sign and as part of that type of permanente that you were talking about before. Do you recommend clinicians have that as a questionnaire in every consultation? Yes. So how do you have that in your clinic mailers? What physical activity questionnaire do you use to assess intake level of physical activity? There are three questions. One about sedentary hours, then we have one question about uh, commuting activity and one question about uh, exercise. But then also we have individual visit to a nurse who is specialized in uh, in lifestyle medicine. And then in fact, we have uh, group visits. So I meet uh, five, two, seven, eight patients and we really encourage them to bring someone also to these group visits. Well, it's, it has turned out very well. People, people enjoy it, and, and people 
think they 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 learn a lot. So every group session is uh, for two hours. So that's how we do it. How many group medical visits would there be in a series for one patient? Five. Okay. And you've published on this. Tell us about the evidence that the group medical visits are effective. Well, we did publish some data from uh, the the program we we launched in the primary health care, but that was uh, two decades ago, and uh, it was uh, it was not a controlled randomized trial. It was just a follow up, but uh, the results were good, and we studied. Uh, cardiovascular risk factors, triglycerides, blood pressure, and those things. But we also studied the quality of life. uh, And also, some years ago, we also published a paper on uh, cost-effectiveness and health economy, and it turned out to be a saving. Of course, we have to put in some money today, but in the long run, uh, it, it means a saving, we think we have a model that works, but of course, it's it's not uh, the model. We have to we have to develop it, and and the world is cha- it's changing. It's uh, we have to adapt it and work with it, and uh, uh, well, it's uh, it's a moving target. I read a piece in the Learning Journal of Medicine in August last year by the people representing the. Uh, health information technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services about the meaningful use regulation for electronic health records, which you may have read. And that is quite interesting because they incentivize the U.S. healthcare system to introduce health, electronic health records across the board. And in those, they mention things that should be monitored at the first and upcoming patient visits. And the only lifestyle factor, unfortunately, included is smoking. So we reacted a bit to this, and I feel that the natural way would be to introduce also physical activity as a core element in this because its importance is so massive. So we hope that we can communicate with both the U.S., but naturally mostly with the Swedish system to make it, in a sense, mandatory. And there is work undergoing on bringing it into the national electronic health record systems. I just want to come to the question of dose, because there is a bit of controversy about this, and it's an important practical question. How do you feel, Carl Johan, if we start with you, about the question of dose? Well, dose can be, of course, expressed in, in several ways. It can be frequency, intensity, and duration. And it depends on the patient, uh, to a large degree, whether he or she can perform uh, physical activity every day, which is the best in a sense, because the the uh, the regularity is quite important, and a a a pill of exercise with this acute effect lasts maybe uh, 24 to 48 hours, let's say, on the glucose tolerance side, and shorter on the blood pressure reduction side. Of course, there's more important long-term effects, but in a sense, dose expresses frequencies. It's important to do it regularly, and that is daily for many patients and maybe every other day for others. When it comes to intensity, that's an interesting aspect because more and more studies are coming that show that uh, interval training of various forms can uh, lead to similar adaptation as less intense but longer duration exercise, possibly even uh, higher adaptation to some degree. Whether it's safe or not, is another 
issue which is being studied in cardiac patients, for example. But this, it seems to move in the direction of possibly more intense exercise can be beneficial. But for others, this is difficult, and um, it's a question of time available, I think, also for various people. So those that have are compressed for time, intensity can somehow make up for that. And otherwise, duration is not bad at all, in a sense, for those that wish to to lose weight, that it consume more calories. So dosage is a tricky issue, but uh, nevertheless, higher dose does lead to additional benefits overall. And what do you recommend if I said to you, I want to optimize my health, so I've got plenty of time, but I just want to get the maximum bang for my buck, how much should I do? Well, it depends on who you are. So describe yourself. I'm just a regular working guy, you know, not super fit, but uh, just active. Okay, so and you're healthy? Yeah. Okay. Well, I would say that if you are considered healthy, uh, then I, you would get most bang for the buck time-wise if you did more interval training. That is, if you go in bursts while you run, walk, uphill, or if you cycle or whatever you do, uh, because then you could reduce the needed training time to uh, make the adaptations in the in the heart muscle and periphery as good or possibly better. So yes, if you're healthy. But then again, the injury risk goes up a bit depending on what you do. So if you run, it can of course be um, slightly more injurious in a sense. But cycling, swimming and so are not really linked to injuries of, of that kind. So physiologically, interval is not bad at all. And if I'm asking for a day, it sounds like you're talking about daily, and then how, how many minutes, though? Because you said interval would reduce it, but what are the options? Well, uh, if you look at the recommendation for health, it states either 150 minutes a week or 30 minutes a day that we say in Sweden of moderate intense physical activity. But you seem uh, fit enough and eager enough, so you can, of course, increase this. And... Uh, you said you wanted to optimize it and get most bang for the buck, then I would say here that maybe every other day and quite intense would be a good investment in a sense. And the duration of that could be 30 minutes. It could be even less if you do it very intense. But for most people, an hour of aerobic, an hour of aerobic exercise every other day is probably fine. And so you think an hour of physical activity accumulated every day doesn't necessarily give you more than every second day? It does. But since you spoke about bang for the buck, I, I somehow interpreted that you wanted to have a reasonable cost-benefit here. And it does give you more, but it costs you twice as much, obviously, since you do it every day. And the question is, does it give you twice as much benefits? No, not necessarily, but it does give you added benefits. So it's up to you to somehow solve the equation on a, on a, to one degree. Uh, personalizing the prescription, thank you, that's helpful. And uh, Malis, do you have a story that comes to mind about a patient who's had dramatic success? Yeah, we had a, a woman, 70-year-old, with a rather uh, difficult heart failure. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, she was given exercise on prescription she came to our group sessions, and my uh, my nurse, uh, who always writes the prescription of exercise to, uh, well, most of our patients, and he asked me, oh, please, what can I tell her? What kind of advice? Because she was rather ill. Then I said, well, I think she has to start with some very easy strength training, and then 
well, if she can, let's try to to walk. And then six months later, this uh, woman came back and her uh, tests, uh, they have improved blood pressure, lipids, uh, blood glucose, and so on. And she was uh, very, very satisfied and happy. And this 70-year-old woman, it turned out that she had gone to a gym, a local gym, and she was lucky to meet a young guy that helped her with some strength training for the legs. And so she 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 didn't even take an outdoor walk before, but it turned out that she, she lived in Stockholm. Uh, she lived uphill. So she called for a taxi. The taxi took her to a flat street, and and there she walked for, she started with 25 meters, and then 30, 40, 50, and then she took the taxi back home. And then she came back six months later, so happy, and all her metabolic uh, tests has improved, but the, I think the most important thing was that she did it, and uh, uh, it was successful. I just came back from uh, Washington, D.C., where we met collaborators in uh, George Washington uh, University and the VA healthcare system. And a colleague there, Peter Kokinos, told me about the results from the training study that he has begun that we will work on as well at the molecular level. And he described in, in very enthusiastic terms how these, these patients with extremely low fitness metabolic syndrome and overweight obesity uh, were put on not so intense training, quite light training, I would say, but a combination of some strength training and aerobic training. And with um, this little effort, he he saw many, many cases, and on average a clear trend, apart from improving their their risk profile, uh, the need for medication, for example, antihypertensives, mm. went down massively in some cases they could take it away simply because the patients had too low a blood pressure as a consequence of this. So this is also illustrative of the fact that physiology and pharmacology is coupled as another illustration. Corey, you mentioned molecular changes, and I know you're an expert on that. What are the immediate benefits of physical activity? Well, first of all, one could say that physical activity somehow interacts with all tissues in the body to some degree, and uh, they influence possibly 50 drug targets. So when people try to discuss uh, the possible production in the future of an exercise pill, that's uh, very, very unlikely since physical activity influences so many mechanisms in the heart, in the skeletal muscle, in the brain, connective tissue, bone, etc. So if you look at the molecular mechanisms that take place in the muscle tissue, which is most studied, I would say, since it's available for sampling and molecular analyses, they include gene activation changes that follow immediately after one session and also that are changed in a more, let's say, stable basal fashion. And these uh, gene activation changes in turn lead to uh, protein expression, protein abundance changes, and also, of course, protein modifications that take place. And this uh, builds the changes in the muscle, which is linked to functional and health benefits. And they include a higher capillary density, higher mitochondrial density, and improved transport mechanisms so that fatty acids and uh, glucose are taken up more easily by the muscle 
And all this brings uh, both uh, improved function, less fatigue, but also lowers blood pressure and improves glucose tolerance. So these are just some links from the genetic to the, the phenotype level. But I would also like to add one last thing, and that is not only are we different at the psychological level and therefore we need to individualize therapy, there are some findings now from us and others that show that we biologically respond differently to exercise, so that some of us respond poorly to a certain type of training, while others respond strongly, even in a supervised, controlled uh, training setup. And therefore, we might in the future have to look at various biomarkers to maybe recommend patients to focus more on, let's say, strength training or interval training or continuing continuous uh, endurance training. We will see, but this is quite fascinating to see that there are uh, there's a basis for possible personalized lifestyle medicine as well. Mm. Yeah. And Carl Johan, um, any last comments from you before you head out the door? Well, in, in summary, as was stated before, this is in a sense a panacea, which is highly central for the future of the, of the healthcare system since the increasing burden, globally speaking, not only rich countries but also in middle-income countries, is um, linked to a large degree to lifestyle and not least physical inactivity. And the WHO is now listing physical inactivity as the fourth most important risk factor for death as a whole. And uh, number one is hypertension. And as we all know, physical, inact physical activity influences blood pressure and lessens it, lowers it. And the, number two is smoking, which physical activity does not directly influence but people are less willing to smoke when they start to do physical activity. Number three is glucose intolerance. And number four is, as I said, physical inactivity. And uh, as we move down the list of risk factors, most of them are influenced by physical activity. So in a sense, it's unethical not to introduce this system, broadly speaking, across the board in the whole world. Yeah, and if I can add... Also from, for example, Stephen Blair's study from Dallas, Texas, if we look at what we call attributable fraction uh, and factors uh, important for all-cause death, low physical activity and low fitness is probably, uh, it's formed the, it forms the largest attributable fraction. And that means if we take into account not only the strength of a certain risk factor, low fitness, but also the prevalence of the risk factor, uh, this uh, really is the largest. So I, I agree. It's really uh, important. And that's a great place to leave it. Uh, we all need to get out and be physically active. So I'm going to thank Kyohan Sundberg and Mela Selenius from both from the Karolinska Institute for this podcast and alert the readers to the book, Physical Activity in the Prevention and Treatment of Disease. It's a handbook. The link is um, on the homepage for this, this website where you can download one copy of this handbook to use in your practice. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. And don't forget the other podcasts, such as the one by Genevieve Healy about sedentary behaviour that was alluded to in the podcast. And also we have Bob Salas talking about the North American Physical Activity Prescription Plan. And we have a terrific podcast by Steve Blair talking about a bunch of these issues. So lots of good material on the BJSM homepage.